complex illnesses, challenging medical conditions or rare diseases, and the healthcare providers who treat them as well as the support system that nurtures and sustains them. Hi, I'm Janice McRae, founder and CEO of Nexus 8 International. Our product, HIPRA, is a collaborative knowledge sharing tool for healthcare providers. Hope you find meaning in the following podcast. Hello and welcome back to HIPRA Podcast. Good evening, Melissa. My name is Drilling Cora and I'm a member of the medical outreach and research team of HIPRA. This podcast is currently interviewing rare disease organizations and we are happy to have the Global Foundation for Paroxysmal Disorders join us. Let's get started learning more about yourself and the organization. So I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background. Uh, thanks, Carleen. So my name is Melissa Bryce. I am the executive director and co-founder of the Global Foundation for Paroxysmal Disorders. I know that's a mouthful. Um, and I have been doing this work for about 13 years now. Uh, I got into rare diseases uh, when my daughter was born in 2008. And we had a two-year diagnostic odyssey to try and determine uh, what was going on with her. Uh, When she was born, she had low muscle tone. um, She had feeding difficulties. She failed her newborn hearing screening and uh, just had a lot of sort of random seeming um, medical issues. And uh, it took us a while to put it all together she was my first child. And, and so, um, you know, I was also a first time mom and and trying to figure all of that out as well. So, um, fast forward, uh, to May of 2010, uh, Jenny was almost two years old and, uh, we, we had been working with a geneticist for quite some time and then, uh, found out, um, that he, he was running, you know, two more tests. And he said, I really don't think either of these are going to be, um, be what your daughter has, but we're going to try them because this is really all I have left to try. And so at that time, you know, we did one more lab draw after, you know, doing countless lab draws with her as, as a baby. And, um, and it, it came back, uh, positive for paroxysmal disorders. So at that point, um, my husband and I at the time, uh, drove, uh, out to Baltimore, Maryland to meet with one of the world experts in paroxysmal disorders. Um, he kind of gave us the lowdown on, on what, what this disease means, uh, for, for our daughter's future and connected us with some families. I'm very sorry to hear that, but I'm uh, glad you were able to push through and advocate for your child because now you are definitely doing amazing things for the disease organization that you have started. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about the rare disease organization itself and when um, a little bit more about the specifics about when and how it got started. 
So as I mentioned, we drove out to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. That was June of, of 2010 and um, met with this particular doctor. And shortly thereafter, I was able to get in touch with some of the families that he um, connected me with. And we, you know, I, I got very involved in that email group uh, and ended up you know, really just thinking, gosh, there's, there's a lot of families out here that really need support. There are a lot, um, of, of people that need help. So, um, there were several family members who were kind of in leadership positions within that email group. Uh, all of us got together and said, okay, we want to start a nonprofit for paroxysmal disorders, but we really at the time didn't know what that would mean. We didn't know that it would mean that we would, um, you know, become full-time volunteers for this organization um, and that we'd really be building it from the ground up. So that, that was kind of one of those learn as you go moments in life. And definitely was something that, um, had I known all of the, all of the pieces involved in starting a nonprofit, I might not have started one, but <laughs> I probably, you know, I probably would have, because I would have had needed to do something productive, but, uh, perhaps I would have gone into it a little more, um, open, open-eyed. So, mm -hmm. Um, those six other families, uh, and, and I were our first board members, uh, and we became incorporated in October of 2010 and, um, received our 501c3 status from the IRS, uh, in January of 2011. So, uh, we did, we did all the things that new organizations do. We made all of the mistakes that new organizations make. Um, you know, we, we didn't have a, a real clear understanding of, of what the role of a nonprofit would be in, um, in this space. And so that took us a little bit of time to figure out, but, um, you know, we, we found our niche in providing patient and family support and in, um, being, a a convener of types, um, for, uh, scientists and medical professionals that have an interest in, in these rare diseases. So, um, you know, patient advocacy groups for rare diseases are, um, there are a lot of them. Uh, there are mm -hmm. now over 10,000 rare diseases that we know of. Um, we used to think that there were 7,000 rare diseases, but there really are 10,000 rare diseases. That's a new statistic from the Every Life Foundation uh, for rare diseases. And uh, one in 10 Americans is, is impacted by a rare disease. So um, there are a lot of, of small patient groups out there, just like us, trying to uh, help help families that are like like their own, um, connect with researchers uh, and and make change for their patients. So uh, for the first five years or so, we really were a volunteer run organization, um, spent a lot of time, you know, 
trying to, to just get, get our feet under us and, um, and determine how, how we wanted to move forward. Now, uh, we have staff around the U S, um, multiple staff members, uh, and here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I live, um, is our headquarters. So, um, it's been an interesting 13 years for sure. Um, our, our work of, of the organization focuses on three main, um, tenants, uh, family support research, medical and scientific research specifically, and then advocacy for legislative change, uh, to, um, to advocate for legislation that can help patients with paroxysmal disorders have a better quality of life, uh, longer life, um, and, uh, help their families have the resources that they need to take care of them. That sounds like quite a, a journey, a very empowering journey, and definitely very empowering for our listeners at HIPRA, knowing that so many people are diagnosed with rare diseases. You said that one out of 10 people are diagnosed with rare diseases. I think that you're doing amazing work, especially with your staff. So to furthermore discuss the disorders, would you be able to explain the enzyme functions of peroxisomes when they're working normally and then what happens when things go wrong so let's let's start you know from the beginning so um a patient develops a paroxysmal disorder when both parents are carriers of a variant that causes um some some sort of change in one of the pex genes the PEX genes, um, there's about 13 or 14 of them, uh, work to, um, they help with protein import into the cell, essentially. And so when the peroxisomes are missing, uh, or are there a fewer number of peroxisomes, or when, um, they don't work right, uh, a lot of things are impacted. So peroxisome biogenesis uh, disorders, there are two main kinds. There's Zelliger spectrum disorder uh, and rhizomelic chondrodysplasia punctata, RCDP. Uh, our organization focuses on Zelliger spectrum disorder. Um, there's another group that that focuses on RCDP, and that group is called Rhizo Kids International. They're based in Alabama, and they just have a lot of great resources for those families. Um, but you know, we focus on cellular spectrum disorders, and then we also focus on an, a number of other paroxysmal diseases that um, are called single enzyme protein deficiencies. So this is where the peroxisome behaves in a slightly different way than Zelliger spectrum disorder um, patients uh, have. So, however, even though with single enzyme protein deficiencies, um, the, the peroxisome may function slightly differently, uh, the clinical manifestations in patients are, are nearly the same. So you know, what a physician would be looking for if they were thinking that they might see a patient with a paroxysmal disorder 
Um, they might be, you know, seeing a, a baby that did not pass their newborn hearing screening. That baby also might have um, just a, a giant soft spot on the top of their head. That was one of the most puzzling pieces of our medical journey. Nobody could figure out why my daughter had this huge soft spot on the top of her head um, when it it should have it should have been grown in by then. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those are the things that I always tell providers, hey, if you see a kid that has hearing loss and a giant soft spot, think Seliger spectrum disorders, think paroxysmal disorders. Um, because it's one of those hallmark symptoms that really sets us apart. There aren't any other rare diseases that I know of that have that, that large open fontanelle for as long, um, as patients with a proxosomal disorder have it. Um, my daughter was like almost two years old by the time her fontanelle closed up. So kind of scary as a mom to have a gigantic, Mm -hmm. big throbbing soft spot on your kid's head, it certainly was a little nerve wracking. Um, so, you know, that's, those are like the main things that I would say to physicians out there, to pediatricians, to specialists, you know, um, soft spot, hearing loss, um, weird GI symptoms, um, liver and kidney issues, um, pathological fractures in the bones. Um, so breaking bones that, that really just has no explanation. Uh, and then, you know, uh, seizures, um, low muscle tone. Uh, when you start seeing these things rack up, it really, you know, it signals, to the provider, or it should signal to the provider that they need to do some further digging, um, that there's, there, there's probably something genetic going on here. Uh, you know, when there are more than two things going on, I, I generally say, okay, that kid should probably see someone in genetics. Um, so, you know, with that, the, the range of, um, impact of proxosomal disorders is really large. So some of our patients die uh, at a very young age. Um, There are many babies that do not survive uh, past a couple of months old. Many may not ever leave the hospital. Uh, Some may may pass away um, in the NICU. Uh, And about 50% of our patient population uh, has, has a very severe phenotype. So that also makes diagnosis difficult when you have a baby that's so sick and so young. Uh, and so we were really pushing hard to have appropriate newborn screening in all 50 States in the U S so that, uh, these patients are identified early on. Uh, and then, you know, Aside from a a very severe phenotype, there are also um, patients that, you know, have have what we would call a moderate or mild phenotype of the disease. And those those patients are generally um, have huge impacts throughout their lifespan. Some of them may live to be 10 ish years old. Um, We have sort of a a little group of, of patients that that tend to live about that long. 
some a little longer. And then we also have patients that live into their forties, um, into their fifties. And generally speaking, these patients end up dying from things like sepsis, um, you know, general infections that most, most people can fight on their own or, um, you know, pneumonia really, or the flu. So, um, just keeping, um, keeping up with flu shots, um, and, and just practicing good hygiene, um, is really, really, really helpful to these kids and helping improve their quality of life. So this was very informative, and I'm sure that the providers appreciate all of this information that you do give as an organization, and you have definitely covered a lot of important information this evening. I have definitely learned a lot tonight, um, and I do hope, you know, your daughter's doing well. Shout out to your daughter. I'm sure she's proud to have you as a mom. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the accomplishments the organization has made to help with the rare disease? Uh, and then how successful are you pushing the the testing for newborns in the 50 states? Yeah, so um, our organization has really had um, just a lot of success, thankfully, due to really engaged patients and families. Um, some of our biggest successes include um, advocating for uh, newborn screening legislation um, in all 50 states and at the federal level. Uh, and then also, you know, we have a very um, robust research program. So we have uh, had um, a staff member at NIH that we pay for uh, doing drug screening um, and assay development for us at, at NIH. Uh, and we also have, you know, done a ton of preclinical work for retinal gene therapy um, and really looking forward to seeing that project move ahead. We're actually looking for um, investment uh, for, to help that project keep on moving ahead. Uh, in terms of, you know, um, the the patients themselves i think one of our greatest successes is is really providing families and patients with educational resources that really help support them in their daily lives so we are very much focused on on real world interventions that help people right now we may not have a cure for this disease, but we certainly have symptomatic treatments that can be helpful. So I would say, you know, along with our research, that uh, really is um, is probably our 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 biggest um, our biggest win. It's just providing those resources for patients, creating them, and making sure that patients have access to them and access to support um, when they need it. I'm sure that parents are thankful, patients are thankful, providers are very thankful for this organization. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share today as far as ways to intern, work for the organization, or any contact information for the listeners if they have further questions? 
Yeah, I would invite um, everyone to check out our website. It is thegfpd.org, so T-H-E-G-F-P-D.org. And we have just a wealth of information on for providers, for patients. Um, and we also have uh, social media channels that are really very... Um, very informative. So we use our social media a lot to uh, educate our audience. Um, so you'll see, you know, different educational posts um, on on our social media just about different uh, areas of the disease. So I would I would encourage everyone to check out our website. You can find our links to social media there as well. Um, we. Uh, are always looking for volunteers. We will have a conference in June of 2024, probably in the Washington, D.C. area. We'll be putting out some info about that very soon. Uh, and, you know, I'm I am always here to uh, answer questions for uh, anyone uh, that has questions. Uh, we do have a family support coordinator that works directly with our families. Um, I'm always happy to talk with researchers or local physicians or ER or NICU doctors uh, and kind of help point them in the right direction to resources um, because they probably really just have never seen one of these patients before in their practice. So, um, you know, I appreciate this forum and appreciate having the opportunity to share a little bit about our mission and um, always happy happy to um, be a resource so thanks so much of course no problem thank you melissa and i'll be sure to check out the conference coming out next year and i just want to lastly thank our listeners thank you for joining us